with that, I'm going to jump into uh, Romans 6, where we'll be the rest of Romans 6. And we've been journeying through the book so far in a life, of, uh, in, a life in Christ, this series. And this is a great book, starting out with really bad news, the bad news of our sin and shame. But as we learned over the last couple weeks, we've learned that Jesus has come to set us free. We sang about it. That, that in Christ we are dead to sin, alive to God. And so we pick up in that way. I'm going to start through uh, verse 15, go through verse 23. You might know that verse, that famous gospel verse at the end of our text. We'll read it, and then we'll pray together. This is what Paul writes in Romans, kind of near the back of the Bible in the New Testament after the Gospels in the book of Acts. He says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If those kids were in here from Sunday school, those Awana kids especially, they would all have just said that right when I said it together. With that, you pray, ask God to speak to your heart, and I'll pray for us together. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word, for its truth. We praise you that you are so good to us, that you give us your word and ways to know you, ways to be obedient. And Father, that you have proclaimed these truths to us. Yes, there is a wage of sin, and that is punishment and death, but there is also because of your love, a free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. And I pray, I pray, I pray that all would know that this day. That we would turn to you in faith, that we would desire to worship you and live obediently because of your great love. Father, how can it be that you are so good to us? I don't know, but you are. And we praise you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, I do order and declare that all persons held as slaves within said designated states in parts of states are and henceforward shall be free. Those words were spoken by this man, President Abraham Lincoln, on September 22nd, 1862, as a warning to all, proclaiming what he was about to set into executive order on January 1st of 1863, he signed what we know as the Emancipation Proclamation. This amazing document and speech would change the course of American history, of course, leading us into, in this country, a civil war, 
But most importantly, the Emancipation Proclamation meant that for thousands of slaves in the country, their legal status would be changing. Although slavery wasn't officially done away with in America until we know the ratification of the 13th Amendment, a little history lesson for us all, and the Constitution changed in 1865, what Lincoln had done was to let it know, be known across the nation that freedom was available and attainable for all men. That's what he did in his great presidency. And every time I look at his picture, I said this to, to folks this morning, I wish he could be our president forever. We'll never know. But what he did there was to let it be known that freedom was available and it could be attainable. In our text, Paul is proclaiming the great emancipation of the Christian from slavery to sin, that it's available, that it's attainable. This emancipation, though, is different from which Lincoln proclaimed in the 13th Amendment that made law. The slaves set free in 1862 were forever free. However, and I'm going to say something, as we learn in our text today, it's a little countercultural to us, those set free from sin, which is available and attainable, are freed only to be a slave again. Now that might make us cringe, that statement, because few issues can make a person cringe more than that word, slavery. It's not just a subject of casual, carefree conversation, and slavery often is denoted in a negative connotation, which rightfully so, but not all the time. For the most part, one refers to past injustices or modern evils. Subject of slavery is usually met with angst and contempt. With that in mind, it's not usually the metaphor that we often reach for to encourage spiritually. But that is not so with the Bible, which is why it's countercultural. You see, slavery is used often poignantly to describe man's unrepentant relationship with sin. So scripture often uses that metaphor as imagery. Slaves to sin. Sin marks us as its own. If you know that, you struggle with that, you know that. It can master you. It's without rules, without mercy, binds us in chains at times, and it doesn't let us go. And so many of us sit here today under the influence and power of sin, and even that in struggling with habitual sin, and you know the power of it in your life, that it can tempt you and draw you in. But in our text this morning, Paul's writing about a different kind of slavery for believers. As we looked at last week when Paul poses a question at the beginning of chapter 6, he says, what shall we say then? What shall we say? Should we continue to go on sinning? That's what he does as he starts this next section at the end of chapter 6. What then? Are we just to go on sinning because we are not under the law but under grace? It's that question he asked at the beginning of the chapter. He's he's bringing it back up now and saying, so are we supposed to just continue with this sin thing and let it enslave us in a way that that we have chains all over us? Should we just, like, go on and live in that, even though God has been gracious and set us free from that? Well, as we learned last week, we need to review some things that we know about our lives when we trust in Christ. Because Paul is building on what we looked at last week. He's building on these truths. And that's what Romans is all about, which is really critical why you read it in a way that it builds foundations. And I think I said that early on when we started looking into Romans, Paul will bring up these foundational blocks, and he'll dabble with them, but then he'll introduce them in depth later. So he's always building from chapter 1 this full gospel of how we can live a life in Christ. 
And last week we learned that when you trust Christ, when you place your faith in him, you are made, in verse 11 there in chapter 6, dead to sin and alive in God. That's transformational. You are no longer caught in the captive penalty of sin, and you are dead to it. You, You want to please God now? Your life has been changed. The Holy Spirit's been deposited. God has proclaimed you holy in the righteousness of Christ on you, dressed clothed in that, and and you're dead to sin, and you're alive to God. Dying to sin is then the first step in this process of what Paul mentions in sanctification, being made more holy. It's the process through which the Spirit refines us, killing off the remnants of our former selves, those sinful habits, tastes, desires, and replacing them with godly affections and inclinations. It's the active, ongoing transformation, we know it's ongoing, of the heart and mind and entire self, beginning at the moment of salvation and continuing through the remainder of your life. So it's a benchmark for you to know. Some people ask me all the time, well, how do I know if I have a saving faith? It's a real simple equation in a way. Are you becoming less and less attracted to sin over the long haul and more and more attracted to Christ? That's transformational. You see, it's true and full life that we've been given When we trust Christ, life by the Spirit, and that life will last forever. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God. Now, in our text this morning, Paul is writing that we were once slaves to sin, and Christ has set us free. But then he adds something profound. As we are free from being a slave to sin, we are now a slave to something else. Righteousness. So you leave enslavement in order to become a slave to something different. That's what this text is saying to righteousness. We are set free only to be a slave again. And so in this way, the slavery metaphor imagery is not a negative thing, but a positive thing. One, us being set free is what has been done for us, and that's important to note. That's grace. Setting us free from the grip of sin and death. The other, which we will talk about this morning, is what we did or what we will do in offering ourselves back to God and being obedient to him. That we would know that we have set, been set free from slavery to sin and enslave ourselves obediently to God and to righteousness. As slaves of righteousness, it is impossible to remain enslaved to sin. Our new nature in Christ guarantees to be a transformed life. Paul emphasizes that change. And if you read earlier in chapter 6, we're not the same people that we were before our salvation. Paul says in verse 6, Our old self was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves. Our new life as Christians is not an amended old life, but a divinely bestowed new one. And some Christians think that. Well, this is just the amended version. No, it's not an amended version. It's a new life that is of the same nature as Christ's very own life. We looked at that last week. That does not mean, though, as you're sitting here wondering, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I still struggle in sin. That does not mean that our sinful tendencies are completely annihilated. The Greek word there translated done away with literally means to render inoperable, inoperative, or invalidate. Sin has lost its dominating control over us. I said that last week. It's, it's lost the power to control. What it has is the power to tempt still and distract, and trick us to bluff. Death 
to sinful self does not mean death to the flesh and its corrupted inclinations because of the pleasures of sin and the weakness that remains in our flesh. We often yield to it. So we struggle. But the tyranny and penalty of sin has been nullified. Sin's potential for expression has not yet fully been removed in us, and we know this. Our human weakness, and Paul references that, and instincts make us in, make us capable of succumbing to temptation. We are, in short, new creations, holy and redeemed, but wrapped, if you will, think of it this way, wrapped in the grave clothes of unredeemed flesh. We, like Lazarus, who came forth out of the grave, but we are still wrapped in some of that stuff, and some of us, by our own choosing, to not think about that rightly. As slaves of righteousness, our entire being, though, we have to know this, has been rescued and reoriented under the authority of Christ through the work of the Spirit. We are being conformed to Christ's character, and we find that's what God is doing in us who trust Christ, reorienting us. Yes, we struggle, and we'll look at that in, in our text this morning, but what he has done is he's refined us and reoriented us to him, being the treasure. That our entire being has been rescued and reoriented which then causes us to look into this text. And what Paul is saying is, he's saying, you know what you need to do, believer? You need to really surrender. Self-surrender to Christ will lead to this kind of slavery, being a slave of righteousness. Have you truly done that? Enslaved yourself to righteousness? You see, in verse 16, there, there, there is a note then that, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? If it is Christ, we're presenting ourselves to be his slave. Now, back in the day, there was such a thing as voluntary slavery. In Roman times, people in dire poverty, you get that metaphor there? We who are in sin are in dire poverty spiritually, could offer themselves as slaves, as slaves simply in order to be fed and housed spiritually here in this metaphor. They would give themselves to a slave master in almost an employment kind of way, but they couldn't expect total freedom to do whatever they wanted. Much it is like when we come to Christ and we truly say we want to obey him as master and Lord, it doesn't mean that we can truly do whatever we want. And that's what Paul is saying in this text. Just like you can't go into work as a car mechanic and expect to get paid because you're weaving baskets all day. You just, at the end of the day, your boss is going to say, so it's kind of like that. Paul's making this metaphor. So you've been saved, you who are in dire poverty, you you who have been set free for all this, you choose to serve Christ in an obedient way, but it doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect at that. It's just we want to please him obediently. We want to enslave ourselves to what he wants, what Christ wants in us. That's what spiritual slavery is and what Paul is unpacking here. And we see that your obedience is required. And that's the tough part for us because we're selfish, prideful people. We don't like to obey. We have a problem with all authority. We've been shaped culturally in, our, in our, our surrounding culture by that. We've been shaped in our family. We don't like to. I sit across from uh, couples that are getting married all the time, and we read Ephesians 5 uh, all the time. And when it gets to the part, like, wives, submit to your husband, I almost see, like, the eyes bug out. Like, why? It's just, th that's our nature. It's always a struggle in that, that we don't want to submit, we don't want to obey. It's something negative all the time. But Paul is saying, this is, this is what we desire when we truly want to worship and honor Christ. Conversion, that turning to Christ for salvation, is an act of self-surrender. 
And it's self-surrender leads inevitably to slavery, and slavery, slavery demands total, radical, and exclusive obedience. That's what you and I are after when we are desperately trying to follow Jesus, radical and exclusive obedience to him. Jesus said himself that no one can serve two masters. Now think about this. He said that in Matthew 6, 24, and he was referring to money, of course, but principally it's the same. You just can't belong to two masters. It will never work. You choose your master, and when you do, regardless of whether you think you do, you obey. So in that way, Jesus was unpacking the Gospels with money. He was saying, like, this is people that's typical and of our sin. Like, I don't have a problem with that. Jesus was saying, you do have a problem with that. Your money controls you. You worship it. You give your life to it. That's your pursuit. That's what he was unpacking there. And you and I, who justify a million things, say, no, I don't, I don't let this sin in my life master me. It doesn't have its fangs in me, control me. And I'm asking us all to pause and say, really? Who is your master? Your obedience to it. And we find that obedience is a heart issue. Look at verse 17. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from where? The heart. To the standard of teaching to which you were committed. What is he talking about there? The standard of teaching to which you were committed. The gospel. This very ground floor level. That Jesus Christ has come and died so that we could be reconciled with God. And God is a holy God and desires holy lives from us. And that, again, all points back to what Paul is saying in that first verse. Do you know that God has not just saved you so you could just live in what you are? This isn't a come-as-you-are, stay-as-you-are kind of gospel. This is a come-as-you-are, yes, but let me change you, conform you to the ways of righteousness and holiness. Verse 18 tells us there's only two kinds of slaveries in life. Having been set free from sin and become slaves of righteousness. Slave to sin or slave to God. A slave to righteousness, to the good, life-giving things. And Paul acknowledges, he's even in verse 19 acknowledging the slavery is not the most appropriate metaphor for the believer. Why then does he use it in verse 19? I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, even to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness in leading sanctification. Paul knows, like we know as we read this, we're weak. We struggle in the flesh, in our human ability and our limitation. Our minds can be prone to wander. Paul's unpacking a doctrinal truth. You've been set free, but you can still wander in that. You need to go back to what you know and can place faith in. So Paul needs to remind us of our obedience and allegiance to Christ. He needs to remind us here who our master is, who we should be enslaving ourselves to. And he explains this as a paradox. Slavery is freedom, and freedom is slavery. That's what he's saying in this paradox. He does this by helping us understand the benefits in verses 20 through 22 of the type of each slavery, and he does that by marking it by its fruit. He challenges us. What fruit were you bearing? And this is for you to think about. As you think about the things you struggle with, or if you don't know Christ, the thing that you're in right now, what, what benefit, what fruit are you bearing when you're enslaved to sin and free to do whatever you wanted? Like, what do you have to show for that? On the contrary, if you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, if you've truly surrendered to him, yielded to him, 
There is a fruit in what God is doing through your obedience now in your sanctification and the thing of ultimate more importance, eternal life. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit that, that you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. So what is the benefit of your sin? You get exactly what you thought. And many of us, we run towards things and we, we think it will please us. We think it will be the thing. That's the thing that tempts us. We think we'll get the most delight and pleasure from that. And most of the time, if not all of the time, we leave disappointed. That wasn't exactly what I thought that'd be, and now I've got this mess around me. On the contrary, Paul says, if you enslave yourself obediently to Christ, if you want to please Him, He's always going to yield the return. He's going to sanctify you. He's going to create in you more and more Christ-likeness, more holiness in that way. And you'll bear fruit, ultimately leading to eternal life. You see, there are wages for each. This famous gospel verse at the end. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul states his most famous gospel verse, and he says it this way, the earnings from a life of sin will always be death. But there is something better, a free gift you need to believe in and receive. And for many of us, for many of us, who even have salvation, we often tend to run towards these things that are not good for us. These two lives opposed to each other. So the question is, the big question, how are you living? What kind of fruit are you producing in your life from either a life of sin or a life of righteousness? What wages are you, as you sit today, currently earning? Now I have to note again, if you've been saved, you that's a forever thing. You cannot cannot lose your salvation in that. These are concrete truths that somebody who has been truly saved with a saving faith cannot lose that. And, and there is just not, there's just not a removal of that, that freedom. It's as if the jail cell is open. Jesus did that, that door flung open. But many of us like to go back into that cell for some reason. So what wages? Know this, the wages of sin is always decay and death. And the wages of righteousness is always growth and life. So I need to pause and ask myself this question. Do I desire to be more holy in my Christian life? That's a challenge. Do I desire to enslave myself to Christ and desire holiness rather than to continue to walk back in to that open jail cell? To set my sin free and become a slave of righteousness. Now, this truth, again, is, is already for those who have trusted Christ. But practically, we can live this out, or you cannot live this out. Practically, it's fleeing from sin and running to more righteous things or not doing that. Many of us are held back by certain sin hindrances. You know that. Even as I talk, you know the one, or you know the two. You know the thing that your heart just keeps running back to. This is the struggle. This is the thing that I struggle with. I keep running back to it. I don't know why. I don't want to do that all the time. And Paul said that. We do what we don't want to do. We don't do what we want to do. There's this continual battle within. But we know you aren't truly held captive as a believer. Now, if you're not a believer, you are captive to sin. That's why you need Jesus to set you free from that. But as a believer, you know that sin has no true power of you, but you keep going back. Temptation brings you back in that cell. You, Christian, need to shut the door to those things. Set yourself free from that. Enslave yourself obediently to Christ. 
So what will you choose? Let me do this. I want to put up on the screen all these things, and in, in, these aren't exhaustive in, in all this way in our sin categories, but maybe you struggle with one of these things. Unforgiveness. Do you continue to run to that relationally for people that have hurt you? You know if you have unforgiveness in your heart how much that enslaves you. You know because you live through it every day. People that have hurt you, you just don't think they deserve forgiveness, and yet you can't reconcile that with the gospel that you believe that Christ has forgiven you, but you won't forgive other people, which is why Peter went to Jesus and said, well, how many times? This is getting really old. These people keep being mean to me, and Jesus, what did he say? Seven times 70. Again, we always say it wasn't on that 491st tribe. You're fine. You tried. 490. That's a lot. Jesus said forever. Maybe that's you. And you just keep running back into that cell. That's on you. Maybe it's bitterness. Unforgiveness produces bitterness. That will make you an angry, complaining person. Now, I'm with you. I complain when it's not nice outside, and I complain when things don't go my way. But that's my heart. And I can tell you, if you complain about everything, and if you nitpick about everything, and people too, which, again, just... Just like time out, let's all do this. Look at yourself, really. <laughs> the person you should complain about the most is you. I've always said that. Your biggest problem is you. Your biggest problem in the marriage, you. Like, we have to do that. But you can become a very bitter person as you just pile on complaint and complaint. one after. Because you know what? Nothing's ever good enough for you. And I can just, I can just give it to you right now. It's never going to be on this earth. So I, I just... I hate to break your heart on that, but you're never going to get the fullness of what you desire unless you know Christ and fully what we will be with him in eternity like. This is a broken, fallen world. That's why he is the highest treasure. Maybe that's maybe it's greed for you. You just continue to run to material things. You continue to run towards fleshly, worldly things. And again, most of us wouldn't stop and say, I'm a greedy person. But look at your life. Do you, do you just always desire more? Is it never good enough? My, my kids, they all struggle with this. You just watch them. They, they want to do something or they want something. They get it, and then it's like, well, can I have another? Can I have more? That's our nature. We always are hungry for more. Is it lust? This is lust worldly. This is not just in a sexual kind. This is all kinds of the world. Do you desire, whether, whether that be lust of popularity or lust of other people or or whatever it is, it's just, I just desire, crave worldly things. Maybe it's jealous. Maybe you sit here today and that's your, I just told somebody this week, that's just an excuse if you're jealous. Like, they, that somebody's life is better than yours. And you look out. Just work back out the list. What will that produce in you? Greed, bitterness, unforgiveness. That, like, like, it's their fault that either God's blessing them or choosing them to give a, a different life a different way. And that, you know what that produces in, in you. Just jealousy, covetousness. Maybe it's dishonesty. Maybe you're just, you don't tell the full version of the truth all the time. Why do you do that? Maybe because you want people to like you better. Maybe you want people to think more high of you. Maybe you just, you just don't want to let people in and show them who you really are. And so we project all those things. Again, most of us, like on this list, wouldn't sit and call ourselves greedy or full-blown liars. But we do it in little ways that we motivate ourselves or, or not motivate, but we prop ourselves up a little higher so we project a better version. How many of us do that? Again, I always say on social media. How many of us put our worst, like, puked on, spit on moments on social media? Look at me in my own vomit here. Like, no, 
We give our best version. We want to portray the best experience. Look at me, which again, it's dangerous in our culture because often Satan uses those things, which I give you counsel again. He uses those things to promote stumbling blocks in other people. I know that when when your life is perfect because it's a social and it's a virtual life, by the way, depiction of that everybody else gets jealous. Well, look at them. They got to go to like vacation there. You know, they got to do this. Well, I'm just sitting here in my factory for 18 hours a day and my boss is a jerk. So I should probably forgive him. I've done it 490 times. <laughs> Maybe it's laziness. Maybe you're just lazy. Again, most of us are not going to look at this list and say, yeah, that's me. But you know you are. You just don't work hard. You waste time. You, and I'm not saying don't relax or recreate, but you are a time waster. You're just lazy. Maybe it's pride. Selfishness, we should be on the top of the list or throughout. Or maybe your heart is just hard and you're pointing at everyone else except for you. It's everybody else's fault except for yours. Maybe you're just so wrapped in yourself selfishly that, that no one can ever be good enough. No one can ever do well enough for you. And you've been enslaved to that. Even as a believer, you've been enslaved in that. But look at the other side of things. What if I decide, you know what? I'm not going to... I'm not going to try so much to run away from these things, but I am going to run towards these things. I am going to run towards righteousness. And that's all I'm asking today. Take a step towards that. If you struggle with unforgiveness, could you ask God to say, could you help me forgive? That's a practical step for you. Yeah, they've wronged me. They've hurt me. But we just sang about it. God has righted all our wrongs. Is it not enough for us to do that? Should we not do that for others? Maybe it's forgiveness. But you say, I'm going to step towards forgiving somebody. You know what? They don't deserve it. And you know what? They probably don't. But you should give it. Maybe you should trade your bitterness for peace. Why do you want to live that way? Most of us don't want to be bitter people. Stop complaining. Start asking God to transform your mind and heart in the way of peace. Maybe you struggle with greed. You know what the, the way to fix that is? Be generous. It really is. It's not just stop being greedy. It's be generous. Take steps. You know what? I, I just like, I don't loan my stuff out to people because they always like ding it and dent it. Just give it away. See what happens in your heart. We are like that as people. Well, I, don't, I have nice things, but I don't want to let people touch them because they'll break them. Let them break them. See if God can't replace that. Maybe he does something in your heart and your, your power tool comes back with a ding in it. Maybe that ding could be a visual reminder of God's goodness in your life. His generosity towards us. You struggle with lust? Where are you putting sacrifice forward in your life? These are all steps that counter this desire. Where am I sacrificing for somebody relationally or for something? Your heart will start to change. Maybe it's jealousy. Have I tried encouraging others over being jealous? Maybe the person that I'm most jealous of and I know, maybe I go to them and say, man, I, I just want to know how you're doing. Maybe my heart starts to change in that. Maybe it's integrity. Start doing the right thing, even with, when it comes with difficult consequences. I just had to talk with one of my kids about this. I wanted to do the right thing. I said, well, what, what's going to happen? I said, it doesn't matter what's going to happen. It matters if you do the right thing. You let God deal with what's going to happen. Maybe your antithesis for laziness is kingdom work and mission. Maybe you who doesn't have enough time, but you know all these hours you waste, could jump into some kind of kingdom work activity. You say, well, I don't have time for that. Look at how much time you spend. How much time are you wasting? Labor for Christ. 
All these things are just counterintuitive. All the stuff I want to do and all the stuff I need to step, step, step towards so that I just don't have to deal with that stuff anymore. Maybe your pride, humble. And you know what? God will humble you. He'll help in that one, I know. He does it all the time to me. He says, well, you think you're so good. How about this one? Humility, but it's something I have to pursue. And I can't do that when I'm always saying it's nobody else's fault or it's everyone else's fault but mine. I can't do that. I have to walk away from all, all situations, relationally, work-wise, other, and always say, you know what? Maybe I'm the biggest problem now. I just have to. I have to train my heart and mind that way. And maybe it's selfishness. Maybe you are entirely wrapped up in yourself. You know what serving is? It's selflessness. I will go and serve somebody selflessly. And you know what? I've said it for weeks leading up here. It is such a freeing thing to know that life is not about you. It's about God and and serving other people. And when you start doing that, you just don't even really care about all that stuff anymore. The list on your heart of all the things I want and need for myself, it just starts to just minimize itself. You know what? I don't even care about that stuff I all cared about. I'm just serving people, encouraging people, and building people up, giving my life for others. That is the most selfless thing you can do. And in all areas that you could do that in ministry, towards each other, taking food to somebody, all those ways are saying, do I trust God more than I trust me? And you have to know that the wages of that list in your life will always lead to decay and death. All those things that you have on that side will always lead to that. But the thing that you pursue on the other side will always lead to growth in life. Maybe not the way that you thought it would, but God is always working in your heart. So what then, Paul writes? What are you going to do? And I'm asking the same question of all of us, myself included today. How can I shut the door to these things that lead to decay and death and enslave myself to the things that lead to growth in life? How can I do this? A good Easter follow-up gets to it this way, in your death, burial, and resurrection. First, if you don't know Christ, you need to die to self. That's the first step for those of us that have never placed our faith in Christ. To trust Him for the forgiveness of sins and turn towards Him and surrender. That means you're dying to yourself, your own desire and will, and repenting and placing your faith in the Son of God, believing on His perfect life for you, His atoning death for you, his burial, and his resurrected life for your resurrected life. He gave his life so I could have mine. That's the first thing for those of us that have never trusted Christ in a saving way. That's what you need to do. The second for all of us is burial. Some of you need to today, or pick a day if you say, I'm not ready today. Pick tomorrow to bury certain sins. How long are you going to tote it around like a dead weight. How long are you going to do that? Coming off the week, we celebrated the greatest resurrection in human history, and we celebrate that every Sunday we come together that led to ultimate life. You need to remember that you can never have a resurrection unless you bury something. You just can't. So what's it going to be on that list for you today to say, you know what, I've just been toting around unforgiveness in my heart. I've just been toting around just bitterness in my heart. Bury it. Pick a day to free yourself from that, to ask God to help you in that, to bury your unforgiveness, to bury your hurt, your bitterness, your greed, your lust, your jealousy, your dishonesty, your laziness, your pride, 
in your selfishness. And the third thing is to resurrect. But that one's on you. Some of us need to take a step towards the way of righteousness, a small step. God is gracious. Jesus was very poignant and profound when he held his hand out with the mustard seed. He said, that's a little bit. I don't need much to work with. Take one step in the way of righteousness. All of us need the Lord's grace and strength in this. Some of you may need help from other brothers and sisters. God might be saying that to you. You need help in counseling. You need help from other brothers and sisters. You need to confess your sin to somebody else so they can walk alongside you. Well, I don't want to live in community that way because they'll know, like, I struggle with this. Join the club. We all struggle. That's the crazy thing about Christians. We, we, like, by the gospel, we know we're not perfect, but then practically we think we're perfect. We don't want others to know our garbage. Maybe you need help. You need to take that first step. You need to surrender your life to, to the power of the Holy Spirit. And most importantly, be led by God's word. Fill your head with truth. Paul, as you read Romans, he appeals to things you know. He goes back and says, you know this. And how do you get that knowledge, that truth? You need to fill your heart and head with the truth of God's word. The less room there is for deception in your heart and for error when you are filling your head and heart with God's truth all the time. You need God's word. And then you step towards gospel relationships, step towards reconciliation and community, step towards peace, towards being a servant, step towards being generous, all righteousness. Do not go back into the jail cell that Christ has flung that door off its hinges. Take a step forward. I'm going to have Michael and John come up, and I just want you to just use this time to reflect as we listen to the words of this song, I'm going to read the lyrics for us. Just a time where you might tangibly say, you know what, God, I have carried this for this long, and today I'm just, it's yours. I'm burying it. This isn't magical, like, like, like this is like God might bring you through some really hard things and you choose to make that step, but you're saying, God, I want to give this away. I don't want to deal with this. This is what this song says, and we'll listen to it together. And just pray. If my hope is Christ alone, if where you are is where I'm home, if knowing you is my delight, if in God alone I'm satisfied, then won't you come break this old heart of stone, start a fire in these bones. Here's my soul. It has been exposed to you, O God of ages past. Convince my heart. O God, we need him to convince our hearts at last. Come me of all I have in you. If my bread is your life laid down, if my cup, your blood poured out, if in your midst all joy is found, if where I walk, no holy ground, if you are the one who holds my future, if your love is what I'm searching for, if you are the one, if you are my treasure, if you are Lord, won't you come and break this old heart of stone? Won't you start a fire in these bones? Won't you convince my heart at last? Come me of all I have in you. Let's pray. Father, would you convince our hearts that there is a better way? That because of your grace and forgiveness, you have offered us Jesus, not just Jesus in salvation, not just to take away the penalty of sin, but to set our hearts free from all of the sin that entangles. Father, break our heart of stone, even in these precious four minutes. I, I know because... I've seen you work, the work that you could do in each one's heart in this room in four minutes. 
could change an eternity. It could change families in this room. It could change relationships. It could change marriages. It could change parent-to-children relationships. It could change teenagers in this room. If you would just work in their heart now and they would say, God, I want to please you. I want to serve you. I want to enslave myself to your righteousness. Father, that we all in this moment would take a step towards you. May your grace abound in this time. May Jesus be exalted. May people place their faith in you for the first time. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'll leave you with this from 1 Thessalonians 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Do a little bit more every day. Have a blessed day and go in peace.